0: Jesus, that we gather here to worship together. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, it's good to be with you. My name is Pastor Justin. If you're new here, we're glad you're here um, to join us this morning. And, and a couple things before we uh, jump into the, today's message, uh, just a, three three things I, w- I want to touch on briefly here. Number one, uh, some of you have noticed, if you've been here for a while, all of a sudden we've got these huge cubes on either side of the stage, what's going on there. So we're building some closets. want to thank Shane Stevenson here at the church for volunteering his carpentry skills, and then thank Eric Bell for doing uh, volunteering his uh, painting skills to make these things happen. Uh, As we are a growing church, some of the classrooms are needed more and more often, and one of the things we lacked was another classroom downstairs. In the back corner, there was a classroom, but it was filled with all of our decorations. So we are going to be able to move a lot of those decorations into that closet along with our sound and musical equipment. The doors are coming, as everything else on the planet, it's in back order somewhere in Washington. So we'll be putting the doors up on the closets. Uh, that's going to open up a, a, a classroom in the back, especially one that is a wheelchair accessible. So we're excited about that and thankful for those who have helped us with that. Uh, the second thing I wanted to mention, uh, within our family, many of you have been praying for Mike and Heather Moustakis. Uh, this last Monday, uh, a week ago Monday, they had... Uh, Gone to Anchorage uh, with uh, to have the birth of their child, a C-section, uh, and we were uh, waiting and praying. It was they—they uh, they were saying that they might have a very complicated birth with months being up there in Anchorage at the hospital. we want to let you know that we're praising God. There was a healthy C-section. Micah Moustakas was born into this world, blowing the doctors away. Uh, We praise God for the healthy birth of Micah. And then the next morning, uh, not even a day old, he went into surgery and had a shunt valve put into his uh, head. He had had some some fluids in his head, and they were able to successfully get a shunt valve in there. They're now able to use a magnet outside of his head to adjust the shunt valve as they They're regulating fluids in this little one's uh, head, and they're able to do that, which is great news because they don't have to go back in for multiple surgeries, and he's eating. As long as he just eats a little bit more here soon, he will be back uh, with us very, very soon, which exceeds all the expectations that the doctors had. So Let's just praise God for what he's doing uh, with Micah and Heather and Mike and and the last thing I just want to let you know so every November we've been we have a, we cast the vision what is God doing in our church why are we here what is our mission what is the vision of God for us and so we want to kick that off this year the mission team we're doing something a little bit different and the first weekend in November we're going to have what we're calling mission weekend and this is a chance for us to rally around well, what are we on this earth for we have, life is a breath, it's a vapor before Jesus comes back or calls us to be with him. And so what do we do with these precious moments here on earth? We're all called to be a part of this mission. It's not just the 13 missionaries that we are supporting as a church. We're all part of this disciple-making journey. And so we want to kick the weekend off, uh, we'll kick the, the the month off with this awesome weekend. I want to invite you to it. Uh, it's going to be a Friday night through a Sunday morning. And so Friday night, we're going to have a time of just bathing uh, our missionaries here around the world, God's mission in prayer and in praise. Daniel, our our youth pastor, is going to be putting together an awesome band, and we're going to praise the Lord together. We're going to pray for this world together, ask God to do what only he can do through us. And then we're going to take Saturday morning, and we're going to have some classes. We're going to be having some people locally uh, teach us a little bit about what does it mean, number one. One class will be dedicated to how do we reach, in our area, we know that addiction is ravishing our, our community. And so what does it look like to reach people in the name of Jesus and within the addiction community and help with recovery? Well, we have some folks from the Freedom House, Jen Waller and some friends are going to come and be able to offer some some valuable insight into what that looks like. What is God already doing and how can we be a part of that? The second thing is going to be how do we reach cross-culturally here in our area and around the state, especially with Alaskan native populations. And so um, there are some folks from Alaska Christian College that are going to come and talk about what God is doing throughout the state and what we can do to be a part of that. And then finally, we'll have a session on what it looks like uh, over the borders and over the oceans around the world, again, what God is doing and how we can be a part of that. So Saturday morning, we'll have those classes. And then Saturday night, if any of you have heard Don Stubbs preach, uh, he's coming up from Ohio with the off-the-wall ministry discipleship down there. Uh, he's come here uh, before, uh, and, and he's going to be sharing that night, Saturday night, charging us with what it looks like from God's word to be on mission. And then we're going to put an exclamation mark on that Saturday mor- uh, Sunday morning, and he'll be preaching here for us on November 7th as we praise God and kick off uh, this vision uh, for the month of November. We're going to be looking at, the elders have been praying through a 10-year vision for our church, this is not a new direction, but how do we unfold our mission and our vision of being a gospel-centered community that reproduces disciples of Jesus? And so we're going to be talking about that for the rest of November. So we just invite you to put that in your uh, calendar. More information will be coming about how to get involved with Mission Weekend. We want to rally as a church and recalibrate into what God is doing as he's bringing his kingdom onto earth as it is in heaven. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Jeremiah 31 today, primarily, we're finishing up, if you haven't been with us, we've been looking at this series called The Unfolding Promise, this series of covenants in the Bible, and today we start week one of three, and we're going to look at this final covenant called the New Covenant. Now, I was, um, I was 20 years old, and I was taking some college classes at KPC. Got any KPC attenders in the, in the house today? Okay, loud and proud, all right, there we go. So I actually, I was pushing for a mascot. They don't have a mascot. So I was offering up, and I thought this was a great idea, the spawning salmon, what do you think? Is that good? Is that pretty? Right? Slycock Creek's right there. I mean, what a gorgeous image. Right? So they, didn't, they didn't take that. Whatever. Okay. That's cool. But my Spanish teacher at the college, uh, she was the sweetest lady on the planet. Never said a cruel word. Never got impatient with anybody. And boy, did I put that to the test. Uh, that I, was, I know it's going to shock a lot of you. I'm glad you're sitting down. But I talked a lot in Spanish class. Um, I had, for four years running in Cook & Academy, I had, the yearbook said that I was most talkative, right? I was pretty proud, and I am still proud of that. The National Honor Society actually rejected me because of my tongue. I said, you're not welcome here. I, sh- I didn't even apply. I don't know why they were rejecting me. But anyway, I'm over that. So you would think by the time I got to college, when I'm 20 years old, that I would have learned my lesson, that I would be better behaved, you would be dead wrong. I was flapping my jaw all through Spanish class. Anybody I saw, I did not know a stranger. Blah, blah, blah. And so one day, at the start of class, my sweet, sweet Spanish teacher, she starts uh, the class by saying this. She says, today, we will be introducing a new policy. No side conversations. (laughs) And I said, got it. Uh, She was saying that to the whole class. But let's be real, Mrs. Passive-Aggressive was talking to one student in particular, right? So she was saying the old way wasn't working. I want you guys to listen and learn and to give your classmates the opportunity to do the same thing. And so, Frankino, I am introducing this new law, this new covenant, a new policy shoddy. That was the policy. So today we're going to be looking at a new policy in our series of the Unfolding Promise. We're going to be looking at, uh, remember, we're looking at God's big story And let's rewind the clock. How do do we get here? So page one, God says, Genesis chapter one, uh, he's created the world and he's created humans to represent him here on earth, to bear his image and display his glory. Adam and Eve are supposed to show the world how to have a right relationship with God, how to have a right relationship with each other, and a right relationship with his creation. But we know what happens two pages later. They they trust and obey the word of the serpent instead of the word of their God. And sin enters into the human race. And the rest of the Bible is how God rescues mankind and his creation back into right relationship with himself. And we've made the argument that in the Bible, the backbone of the Bible's story is this series of covenants or promises. A covenant was an agreement, right? a pact that God would make with these humans. And he starts with Adam and Eve. In the garden, right after they've sinned, in the midst of the curse, he says, I am going to provide the snake-crushing seed from the woman who will defeat sin and death for you. No, no sooner do we see the curse than we're given a remedy. And then he tells Noah, He says, I'm going to send this worldwide flood in judgment on mankind's sin. But at the end, he gives this sign of a rainbow. He says, there's a promise that I want to leave for you. That the next time, remember we said the bow. It was really the word was a bow. And if an arrow was pointing from that bow, what direction is it pointing? It's pointing up. He said, the next time... That my wrath is placed on the sins of this world. The arrow is pointing up at me. That I am going to take the arrow. Jesus Christ himself would be pierced for our iniquities. He's also reminding us that the the, the promise of this rescue was not based on our faithfulness, praise the Lord, but on his own faithfulness. Then he promised to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you this great nation. And um, I am actually going to put you as a people into this land that was called Canaan at the time. And he says, I'm going to bless all nations through your nation. That the rescuer will come from for the whole world and it's going to come through God's people, which we come to know as Israel. And he makes this promise, this covenant with Israel. He says, you will be set apart as my special people. You're going to live differently than the rest of the world. You're going to trust me and obey me as your God. You're actually going to do what Israel failed to do. To show the world how to live rightly with me and each other and creation. That you're going to be a light to the dark nations. The rest of the nations will look at the way Israel's living, abandon their false gods and self-destructive ways, and join him in the worship of the one true God. But we know the story. Israel fails miserably. And God sees Israel completely incapable of keeping this law. And so in Jeremiah chapter 31, he says, Today I am introducing a new policy. There is a, a new law, a new covenant that he's going to give. And now with my Spanish teacher, she, she didn't know what was coming, right? She didn't know she was going to inherit Gabby McGabberton into her class. So she had to adjust. And listen, this, that's not what God's doing here. God wasn't like, well, we'll try things with Israel and, oh, I didn't realize it wouldn't work, so now we've got to try something different. God has one plan and one promise, and we see a series of of promises unfolding that one good plan. God is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He wasn't thwarted by any of this. He wasn't surprised by any of this. He's going to continue to move forward in his rescue plan now, the last two weeks, if you were with us, we looked at David and this new covenant. He said that the rescuer, that snake crusher, is going to come from the line of David. He will be a king from David's descendants. And that one will come and do for Israel, as Israel's representative, what Israel could fail to do. Lead God's human race into his presence. And we said last week that this, this coming one would be a prophet and a priest and a king. A prophet that would teach the world how to live Rightly a priest that would lead us into God's presence, and a a, a king that would rule the world with peace and justice forever. Now this week, we're going to look at this final covenant, the new covenant where all of this comes together. And listen, this morning, I think we all know, if we're honest with ourselves, that we, we all deep down, like Israel, know that we're not living as we should be, right? There are sins of commission, things that we are doing and have done that we should not do and we should not have done. There's also sins of omission, things that we should be doing and should have done that we didn't and aren't. And so we come together recognizing that brokenness, and we see this morning God's new policy that is going to enable the human race to be the kind of classmates that we're called to be and to honor the teacher rightly with this new policy. And so what we want to do is this this policy itself is found in Jeremiah chapter 31, his new covenant. So let's look at the first few verses here. He says, look, he's speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. The days are coming, this is the Lord's declaration, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This will not be, this one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. On the day, I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master. This is the Lord's declaration. He says that Israel was not able to keep my old covenant. They broke the covenant. So I'm going to introduce this new covenant policy, this new covenant. So this morning, I want to answer the question, what is the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant? What's similar between these two covenants, and what does it look like for us today? What's our relationship to these covenants, these promises that were made so long ago? Let's, let's dive into the text together to find answers to those questions. First of all, what is the same? What do we see that's similar? Two things that we see it's similar. Number one, or A, uh, the same principle is it placed in both covenants. It's God's grace through faith. God's grace through faith. So, I'll tell you a story. Once upon a time, there was a very hungry man, a man who had no ability, no money uh, to be able to buy his own food. We will call him Old Testament Oscar. Poor guy. Look at poor. He's so hungry. Oscar comes to the church and he's asking uh, me for food. And I say, Oscar, I am here to help. Uh, hang on. Let me go get what you need. What what you? Uh, and I'll be right back. Don't steal food from anybody. Certainly don't kill anybody to take their food, Oscar. Wait for me to return. So Oscar has to trust me, right? He has, to, he has to obey me and look forward by faith that I will return with the nutrition that he needs for his life. And boy, do I come through, right? I give him Big Mac and fries. Uh, don't worry it's a diet coke and so I tell Oscar I have provided now when I get back with Oscar's Mickey D's uh, and there's another person who's hungry and also has no money she arrives onto the scene and her name is New Testament Nellie now Nellie says I'm hungry too and just like Oscar she also cannot afford her own food she also needs to trust me to provide to be able to feed her Now, both Oscar and Nellie are depending on me for food. They can't provide for themselves. They need need me to nourish them. But Oscar, the difference is Oscar looks forward by faith. He didn't know the details. He didn't know it was going to be a Big Mac, right? He didn't know what I was going to bring him. He just knew that that provision was coming. Whereas when Nellie comes onto the scene, the provision's already here. and She immediately knows that it is the goodness that comes from the golden arches. Now, you will hear people say things like, in the Old Testament... It was salvation by works. It was by keeping the law. But in the New Testament, it's grace, baby. It's, it's all free from the person of Jesus. In the words of my mentor, Larry, a very spiritual man, horse feathers, right? That is not, that is not true. That, that, that God has always been the same, and the way to be saved through him has always been the same. Like Oscar, the Old Testament saints were looking forward to God's provision. He says, I will come back, and I will bring you what you need. But like, the, like it was a fuzzy picture, right? They, they know there's a, a snake, snake's head's going to be crushed. We're offering sacrifices, blood needs to be shed. There's going to be a king coming from David's line. They know truths, but they don't see the picture clearly, right? Whereas we today are like the New Testament Nellies. We we've arrived on the scene and the provision has already come. Jesus Christ has already come and died and rose again. We know what the answer is to God's provision. Now, both are saved by faith in his provision. But the Old Testament Oscars were looking forward by faith, whereas the New Testament Nellies are looking backward by faith. This is an important thing to understand. So God saved Israel. Remember, that their story echoes our story. So when God saved the people of Israel, he first saved them out of slavery from Egypt and then He gave them his law, and that order is extremely important. He didn't say, I need you to first shape up. I need you to first live rightly, and then I'll rescue you. He said, because I've saved you from slavery, this is now how you should live. And this is actually when he gives us the Ten Commandments. The very first thing he says is not what to do. It's what he has done. Look at Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. Uh, Verse 1, then God spoke all these words... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. He first says what he does and has done is because I saved you, because I rescued you from bondage, now, verse 3, do not have any other gods before me. He says, remember how I saved you already the power of my right hand they were my plagues I parted the sea and through the it was a symbol of the birth canal they moved through the waters from death to life and are now born as his new people and now that I've given you new life this is how you should live trust me and look to no other source no other help you're not you're not in bondage in Egypt anymore you're not in the rule of your old master pharaoh you're my people And obedience to God always stems from faith in God. I trust you and your heart toward me. Therefore, I'm going to believe you and obey you. See, some people would want to say that the Old Testament people were saved by works. But in the New Testament, after Jesus, were saved by faith. But that is not what God's word teaches. Romans 4 talks about two of the pillars of the the faith before Jesus came. Uh, Verse 2, if Abraham was justified, made right in God's sight by what he did, by his works, he has something to boast about but not before God. For what does the scripture teach? What does it say? Abraham believed God. He's quoting Genesis 15. Before the law ever came, and it was credited to him for righteousness. God said, I accepted Abraham, not because of anything he did, but because he believed me. That is the way for his salvation. Faith in my grace. And then I love the subtitle in, in the CSB. It says, David celebrates the same truth. Likewise, David, a king under the law in, uh, the, people, in the land of Israel, Also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits, gives righteousness to apart from works. And it says, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. Habakkuk, an Old Testament prophet in the middle of the people under the law. He says the righteous one will live not by obeying and keeping the law perfectly, but by faith in God and his promises. When Israel was, was offering these sacrifices of goats and sheep, they were looking forward by faith. It was a sacrifice of faith saying there's one who's going to come to do what this, this goat or this, this bull could never do on my behalf. And just like Israel, God says to his church, What I have done for you by my glorious right hand. I gave to you what you could never earn or never achieve on your own. And therefore, this is how you should now live. The new birth and the new creation comes first. And then this is how you should live. And you read the New Testament. This is always Paul's language. The book of Ephesians. He spends the first three chapters saying, here's who you are in Christ. This is who you, this is what God did for you. This is what he's done through Christ for you and in you and through you. And then he says in chapters four through six, therefore you should live this way. This is the hinge point in Ephesians chapter four. He says, therefore, in light of who you are in Christ, through my salvation, grace through faith in me, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. I've called you out of death into life, out of darkness into light. Therefore, live according to who you are. See, the gospel is not straighten up and God will save you. That's That's backwards to the gospel. The gospel is God saved you so that we can walk the straight path with him. You and I, like Egypt, were stuck in our sin. We were in our jail cell, in slavery to sin's Egypt, and God came in and broke our chains, delivered us out of that hopeless bondage to do what we could never do, so that we could now live in freedom, no longer under the bondage of our old master, but free to live according to the law of our new. Galatians 3 says, Now it is clear that no one, Not just after Jesus, but no one of all time has been justified before God by the law, by keeping his commandments. Because the righteous will live by faith. Live by faith, trusting that God will keep his promises. The Old Testament saints like Adam and, or excuse me, Abraham and David were looking forward by faith to Jesus. The New Testament believers look backward by faith to Jesus. The difference is that we know who Big Mac Jesus is, because he's already been here on the scene. So we see the same principle, that God's grace through faith is the only way that anybody's ever been saved. The second thing we see is that it's the same purpose. It's God's glory through his love. That God's purpose for us, why did God create humans in the first place? We saw on the first page of the Bible is to bear his image. We said that that means to be these little living statues of God. That, that, and the more that a statue bears resemblance to its original, the better of a representative it is, Right? So if the church built a statue for me, and I would leave this church if you did, if, if you built one, you're like, this looks just like Justin, right? Like, well, maybe a kind of a modern abstract art thing going on here. Uh, but okay, thanks, guys. So if it looks nothing like me, if you, if you made a statue of a platypus with six arms, and worst of all, it's wearing an I heart the University of North Carolina t-shirt, I would definitely leave the church, right? That is reprehensible in my sight. That does not honor or, or uh, give glory to the duke lover that you have as your pastor. So how do we, as God's living statues, look, live in a way that, that glorifies him, that rightly represents him? That, that, that does not offend our maker, but gives honor to the one whose image we are bearing. We know that God is love. Right and, and that God, for us to re- represent him rightly on this earth is for us to be in a right relationship with him and others and creation. And what does that look like? It looks like love. And even in that old covenant, that was the heart of that covenant. In, in Deuteronomy 6, it says, you, if you were going to bear God's image, you would keep his law because God's law reflects his character. You want to live like God, then you do what God says and you will reflect that character. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5 says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Remember Jesus said if you're going to summarize all of the 613 commands, it would boil down to one thing, love. Love God with everything in you and love your neighbor as yourself. That was the heart of the old covenant, to glorify God through a life of love. That Israel was to love God and by, by faith, right? I'm going I'm to do what you say. I'm going to love. And this, this was the heart. If, if you love me, you will worship me alone. You will not have any other gods. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you will not murder them. You will not covet their things. You will not steal from them. You will not adulter, commit adultery with them. And this is the exact same purpose that we see in the New Covenant. In the New Testament, we see what is God's heart for us today It summarizes it in Galatians 5. The whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. It has not changed. The command is still glorify your God through loving him and loving the people around you. And in both the Old and New Covenant, how do we live out our purpose? It's by looking like God. And what does that look like? It's by loving him. We can rock our I Heart God t-shirts as his little statues. That's a weird one. So, So if if that's what's similar, then what's different? What's different between the old covenant and the new covenant? Well, I'm I'm glad you asked. That's where we're going. What what is different? What is different? Let's let's go back to Jeremiah and look at what he says. Uh, Verse 31, he said, I'll make a new covenant with Israel, with Judah, the two two tribes, or the two nations, the kingdoms. This one, he says in verse 32, will not be like my covenant that they broke. Clearly, the first one didn't work. So we need a new covenant. What's that going to look like? He unpacks it starting in verse 33. Instead, this is the new, this is, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. So we see two things in this new covenant that are far better than what we see in the old covenant. The first one is a better promise, and this promise is based on God's faithfulness alone. If you go back to the Old Covenant, in Deuteronomy, he tells them what the conditions are of his pact, his agreement, his covenant with Israel. He says, look, today I set before you a blessing and a curse. There will be a blessing if, there's your condition, if you obey the commands of the Lord your God I'm giving you today. And a curse if you do not obey the commands of the Lord your God and you turn aside from the path I command you today by following other gods you have not known. So he says, here's here's my covenant with Israel. If they obey me, I will bless them. Now, it's important to understand. He's not saying if they obey me, that I'll give them eternal life. Eternal life is not what's at play in the old covenant with Israel. That promise has come before that covenant. What he says is, I will bless you. And he unpacks that and what that means in the law. That means they're going to flourish. Their their, their crops are going to flourish. Their their families will flourish. And they will stay in the land that he had promised them. But he says, if you disobey me, and you're not a light to the nations. if If you walk in disobedience to my law, I will curse you. Things will fall apart until eventually I drive you out of the land. And that's exactly what happens in the story, right? They're exiled into Assyria and Babylon because they broke the covenant. Because they did not and actually could not obey God rightly. And so we see... There needs to be something new and better. And that's exactly what is offered in the new covenant. A better promise. Look at what he says in verse 34 of the new covenant. I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. He says, I promise you forgiveness. And how, for how long? Never again will I hold it against you. Never again will you be condemned. And he goes on to say, he picks this cool at, at, after that text. He says, basically it would be more likely that the sun would stop rising off the horizon than for me to ever go back on this promise. There's no condition here. It's not, I will forgive you if you start to become a better person, if you pay me back, if you hold up your, it's, there's no conditions attached. It is an unconditional promise. I will forgive and never again remember your sin. So the old covenant pointed forward to this, this forgiveness that was available to them. And we know that when they sacrificed these bulls and goats and sheep, it would symbolically cover their sins, cleanse them from their sins. But they, the, the Hebrews is clear. You'd have to, you, those can't. They don't have the power to actually cleanse your heart. A new and better sacrifice had to come, and that's exactly what's promised in, in Hebrews chapter 9. It says, That is why he, Jesus, is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and his people, so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance... God has promised them, for Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under that first covenant. You broke my first one, a new and better one's got to come where my forgiveness is eternal. The Old Testament covenant was based on the ability for, the people's ability to obey. This new covenant is based on God's ability to be faithful and Jesus to obey on our behalf. The promise did not rest on on mankind's obedience. It rested on his original promise in the garden that he would send this snake crusher who would defeat sin and death for us. That would rescue us from the shackles. That would take us out of the miry pit that we could never climb out of on our own. And God delivered when Jesus was born of the seed of a woman and crushed the head of Satan and sin and death forever. We've been given full and forever forgiveness, a much better promise than what he gave to Israel. There's also a better provision, a much better provision. How did he provide for this promise? You see, it's his own spirit. So what we needed was more than a new law. It wasn't just, remember, the law wasn't what was broken. It was, they didn't just need a new law. So imagine that I told you all, listen, do not think about what you're going to have for lunch today. Don't do it. Do not think about lunch. Get that out of your mind. Don't think about going to Pizza Boy's. And don't think about, as you're pulling that piece of pizza up from the pan, the cheese just kind of just hanging on, and the, the grease dribbling down your chin. Just don't think about that, right? Now, what are you thinking about? I just told you not to think about lunch, right? If I tell you, do not think about a pink elephant. Stop thinking about pink elephants. Get those pink elephants out of your mind. Quit thinking about, all of a sudden, you have never in your life wanted to think about a pink elephant. But all of a sudden, you can't get those things out of your mind, right? What have I told you, stop that addiction? Thou shalt not, look at pornography. Thou shalt not eat too much or drink too much. Don't be anxious. Don't be jealous. You already know you need to stop. And in fact, you probably want to stop, right? So why can't we? We need more than a new command. You and I need the ability to obey it. And that's exactly what Jesus promises. God promises us in the new covenant. He promises more than a new law, he promises a new heart. Verse 33 says, I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they will be my people, no strings attached. So what we see here, what does that mean? You ever read that? What in the world is he talking about writing the law on their hearts? Well, the Hebrew word for heart meant much more than just your physical blood pumping machine. It didn't just mean a kind of touchy-feely emotion. The, the heart for the Hebrew mindset, it was the core of who you were. It was your mind that you thought with. It was your emotions that you felt with. And it was the core of your will, your, your wants and your desires, the, the motivator of your life. And what God is saying is, I'm not just going to teach you what to do. I am going to give you the ability and the desire to do it. That, that my, my commands will become your desire. See, the old nature wanted one thing and one thing only. To be our own God. To call the shots in my life. Every, put myself first. My comforts. My control. My power. M- approval from God and others toward myself. But God says, I'm going to give you a new set of desires. This new set of desires that are my desires. That you will love others. You will love me more than yourself. Now, how does he do that? Ezekiel 36, another passage that talks about what this new covenant's going to look like. And he starts by, by talking about this forgiveness that Jeremiah did. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. Yes and amen. That we are cleansed as God's people. There is no condemnation. There is no shame in Christ Jesus because he has forgiven us forever. And yet, we learned with Noah, there needs to be more than a second chance. When he wiped out the world of the flood and started over with Noah, they were still sinful. Why? They had the same heart. You need more than a new start. You need a new heart. That rhymed. I didn't even plan it. So we see that he said you need more than just a second chance. This is not just wiping off the etch-a-sketch and saying get it right this time. We need more than that. And he he tells us what that's going to be next. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit. God says, I will place my own spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. This is incredible. He says, I'm going to give you a heart transplant. And, and what spirit? He says, my own spirit. Remember a couple of weeks ago? Whose heart? God's heart. He says, I'm going to give you my own heartbeat in your. T-. And how does he do that? Through the person of Jesus. That our Lord was crucified, he was buried, and three days later, what happened? He rose from the dead. And this is the new covenant that by faith, we're united with Jesus. And it's more than just Jesus dying for us. What's true of Christ is true of us. So we were crucified with him. He says, I will remove your heart of stone, the heart that is set against me, that will not do and doesn't even want to do what I say. He says, I take those old desires. Galatians 5 says, I crucified those with Jesus to the cross. We, our old person, our old nature, our old desires were crucified with Christ, then buried into the ground. And when we rose again, they didn't come with us. What came up was a new creation, a new life through the waters of death, into life with Christ. And he says, I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to give you a new set of desires, a new ability to do what I've called you to do. And how I'm going to place my own spirit in you. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And he says in verse 27, I'll place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. With Jesus living in us, in his heart, we now can have the desire and the ability to love to carry out the commands of our God to his glory. I love, we've quoted it before. John Bunyan says it so well. He says, run, John, run. The law commands, but it gives us neither feet nor hands. All the law can do is say, stop thinking about pink elephants. You are not supposed to think about lunch. But it cannot give us the ability to do it. It's far better news the gospel brings. Why? It bids us fly and it gives us wings. See, God didn't just say stop thinking about lunch or, or quit that addiction, quit that behavior. He gives us Jesus' very spirit, and a new desire, and the ability to soar into a much better life, into God's will. So, so what does this mean for us? What's our relationship with these old and new covenants? I want to quote Hebrews 8. It's kind of cool. They, they actually quote this Jeremiah 31 passage of the New Covenant. This is the longest Old Testament quote in your New Testament. He says, for, he starts off by saying, if, for if that first covenant had been faultless, if that one was good, if that, or if that one would have been, got the job done on its own, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with his people, he says, so God said, they are, they are not able to keep my first covenant. So there's new, something new better. And that's when he quotes, and we've already looked at it, the, the, the new covenant from Jeremiah. Then he wraps up by saying, by saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. What's he saying? Israel couldn't keep the first, the old covenant, so I've given them a new covenant. They're no longer under that old covenant. And let me clearly say emphatically, you and I are not under the law of Moses. We are not under the old covenant. In fact, as Gentiles, as non-Jews, never been under the old covenant. That was just the people of Israel until Christ came. It was a temporary thing that he was doing. But, but... Let us not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because the problem wasn't the law itself. The problem is not God's law. In the New Testament, this is what Paul has to say about the law. What should we say then? Is the law sin? No, absolutely not. God forbid, some translations say. He says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Everything God creates is good, right? All creation was good. And God's law, is, it reflects his nature. So it's holy and it's good and it's just, just like God is holy and, and just and, and good. The problem is not God's law. It's his glorious, righteous standard. The problem is not the law. The problem is us. The problem is our own sinful heart, a nature and a desire that didn't, couldn't, and didn't even want to obey God's way. This is what I love. uh, Romans 8, the New Living, says it well. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. He said, here is what I want you to do. But you don't have the ability to do it your your nature is weak You, you don't you don't have the right desire or ability so god did what the law could not do he sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have and in that body god declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins jesus was obedient unto death in a way that we never were and never could have been on our own. He did this, why? So that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow that spirit, the new spirit that he placed within us. See, the law could not make us live rightly because we didn't have the ability to obey it. So he put his spirit in us wrote that law on our hearts so that we might have the ability to live according to god's ways so the million dollar question then is why in the world did he give us the law like if it couldn't save israel's like you could have saved us hundreds and hundreds of years of failure like what are you are we just an object lesson like what is the deal um, again you guys are asking great questions this morning galatians 3 why then was the law given Why paul's like what in the world And there's two important reasons that God gave the law in his infinite wisdom that he he unpacks. The first one is that it reveals. It reveals. So the, the law clearly shows the nature of who our God is, holy and just and good. But it also does something that a good mirror does in a very annoying fashion. It shows our own blemishes, right? It shows all the things that we don't want to face up that are the reality of our face, right? It shows us who we are. He says, it was given alongside the promise to show people their sin, God says, I am promising a rescuer to come into this world. I promised it since the day you sinned. But just as important that a rescuer comes is we need to see our need for the rescuer. You see, if all we do is see that there's this hypothetical sin, Derek Webb says, if our sin is hypothetical, then our Savior will be hypothetical. And what he means by that is a lot of us would say, yeah, I know that all have sinned and fall short. I doubt anybody in this room would raise their hand and say, I'm perfect, just nailed it in life so far, going to continue to do so, right? You liar, right? Now you're a sinner like us, right? None of us would claim that, but... can you point to a specific sin in your life this last week and say that is an affront to God? That is out of line with his character and his his heart for me. See, until we see the depth of our sin, how real sin is, we will not see the depth of our Savior and understand how desperately we needed him. The law was necessary to show Israel and through Israel show the world our sin and our need for a Savior. The second thing that the law did was it restrains. So we know everybody's favorite signs along the highway, the, the speed limit sign, right? Now we know The speed limit sign cannot keep us from driving like maniacs, right? It has no power to grab us or slow our our car down. But what does it do? It restrains because we know that if I'm driving 80 miles an hour down the Sterling Highway, when it's 55, a cop can pull me over and I can be punished, right? I can receive a fine or if I'm driving too fast, I can be thrown into Wildwood. It restrains us. from. It can't stop us from speeding, but it can sure restrain us. And in the same way, the law, God said, here is the law. And if you break it, here are the consequences. The law couldn't stop Israel from sinning, but it could restrain. We saw what happened before the flood when people were just destroying each other. He gave Israel the law to restrain their sin through consequences. He says in verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. It protected them in custody like a like a, like a tutor or a schoolmaster, a disciplinarian is really the, the word there. Until what? Verse 25, and now that the way of faith has come, now that Jesus is here, we no longer need the law as our guardian. We have a better master, one that can actually change our hearts, not just restrain sin, but actually defeat it once and for all. We love to quote uh, Romans 6.14. You're not under law, but you're under grace. Amen? We're not under law. We just said we're not under the old covenant. We are not under law. We are under grace. Yes and amen. But we don't then say, well, sweet, Jesus forgives all my wrongs, so now I can just go live however I want. And we start swiping the grace card, right? We'll put it on his account. And, and, and he, we, we can see that we sometimes oppose grace and works from each other. And so it's not works, it's faith. It's not works, it's grace. Again, Pastor Larry would say horse feathers. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He says, your righteousness, your right living actually needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees were just keeping the outward law. They were going through the motions, keeping the outward performance of the the Old Testament law, but in their hearts was all sorts of corruption and evil desires and motives. He says, you've actually got to have not just the right external, but the right internal, the right heart to walk with me. Jesus did not lower the bar. What Jesus did was he kept the bar for us. He lived the righteous life from the right heart that we never could, and now placed in us, he can work out of us not just the right external, but the right internal. Jesus said to his disciples, John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commands. If you love me, if you're doing this with me, you will obey me. See, we're not under the law of Moses, but we are called to obey our new master. What Jesus says we do he says in John fifteen, without me you can do nothing. The only way we're going to bear fruit is if our branch is connected to His vine. What He does in and through us, but we will work. So, what's the difference between? How do we make sure it's it's faith and not works? What is that? Dallas Willard, one of the most helpful quotes I've ever had on this, helped me think clearly on this issue. He says, grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. He says, earning is an attitude, whereas effort is an action. Earning is an attitude, effort is an action. Without effort, we would be nowhere. What's he saying? Legalism says that I do good things in order to gain God's approval legalism says that if I live right if I read my Bible enough if I go to church enough if I help enough people across the street if I do all then God will love me and things will go right if I live right that's transactional and that's earning God's favor that opposes grace effort he says does not oppose his grace I work but not to earn God's favor but out of the new creation that already fully and forever has his favor in Jesus Trusting that his way for me is, is better than my old way. So, so two, two things and then we'll be done. Uh, first of all, boast only in Jesus' finished work. We must only boast in the finished work of Jesus. We cannot earn his grace. There is nothing that you and I can do to make God love us any more than he already does. There's nothing we can make him do to love us any less than he already does. And we boast not in how awesome we are and how great we've been this week so that God will love us and make things go right. We boast in how awesome Jesus is and that he did, he lived the right life that we couldn't live and gave us his right heart in a free grace. So maybe this morning, are you trying to earn what's freely been given to you so that you can boast in yourself? Do you have an attitude that says, if I can just, if I can just do enough good things, God will, God, will, God will shine his light upon me in favor? But then we also see that we need to make every effort to work out what God's spirit works in. Make every effort. Remember, he's not opposed to effort. He's opposed to earning. Fifteen times in the New Testament, it says, make every effort. Sweat. Work. Right? Give effort to work out what God works in you. I had a Bible teacher. Uh, his name was Butch. So you want to listen and obey to a teacher named Butch, okay? And he said one time there was there was a, a student that was missing in class. So where where is so and so? I said, oh, he's down in his dorm room. Uh, he's still sleeping. He said that he doesn't want to do anything by works, right? Just by faith. So he says if the Holy Spirit tells him and kind of carries him to class, then he'll come. But till then, he's he's not going to come. <laughs> well, Butch, who I think might have been a former was a former member of the mob. I'm I'm not totally sure. He barges down into the dude's cla- into the dude's bedroom grabs his pajamas by the collar and says I'm the holy spirit get to class <laughs> right <laughs> what do we see here right grace is not opposed to you getting out of bed and walking into the classroom grace is opposed to saying because I walked into the classroom I'm going to earn god's love and acceptance and favor we put in the effort we serve and it's hard work we we study God's word, it's confusing. It takes work. We, we, we pray and we do those things, not in order to earn God's favor, but, but because we have it. So maybe I want to ask you: are you putting in the effort? If you're just saying, I'm saved by grace through faith, no works here, don't need to do it, don't need to do it. We are not following Jesus, who says, make every effort. Next week we're gonna look at what Jesus Himself has to say about this new covenant. And he invites us to the supper table to both feast with him and to feast on him. We'll hear his words on this. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these promises that you've given us, the story that is unfolding, and then we see the part that we play in it. Father, we, like Israel, are unable in our own strength to free ourselves from the shackles of sin and death. i got many brothers and sisters in this room who've felt the full force of that. Maybe there's a, an addiction that's hampering them, uh, something that's been done to them. There's condemnation, there's shame, there's brokenness, and some are feeling the full weight of that and need to know that the grace of God is offered free of any merit on their own. Some of us today need to, need to see that law, of m- the mirror of the law, and to see that we have real sin in our life before we really call out on the real Savior, that we've been coasting, we've been doing our own thing, thinking, well, I'm better than my neighbor, I'm Okay. Or that you would bring your law to the proud, your grace to the humble. And we know that both are really graces from you. Father, anybody in this room that's been trying to earn what's freely given, they would lay down their arms and receive freely through Christ what can only be given by his grace and his finished work, not on their works. But I also pray for my brothers and sisters who have not been making effort, that have been coasting, sins of commission and omission, thinking I'm saved by grace and it's all good that there would be a conviction of your Holy Spirit, there'd be repentance of those things, but to know that there's full forgiveness offered in Jesus to restore and renew and continue to grow us, cultivate that new heart that's been placed in us. We're not that old person anymore. We're a new creation. That we live that out as your little statues, glorifying you as we love you, love this world, Jesus through us. That's why he gets all the glory, Father. We know it's only by grace through faith, back then and now and forever. We pray these things in your son's beautiful covenant, the spirit that's in us and in his name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?